0: Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of John. We're working our way through the gospel of John, and we are in chapter 12. Two weeks ago, we looked at the triumphal entry when our Lord Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem in that Passion Week. So I wanna pick up the reading in verse 17 after the triumphal entry, and then our focus this morning will be on verses 20 to 26. So beginning in chapter 12 at verse 17. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, "'Sir, we wish to see Jesus.' Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, "'The hour has come that the Son of Man "'should be glorified. "'Most assuredly, I say to you, "'unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, "'it remains alone. "'But if it dies, it produces much grain. "'He who loves his life will lose it, "'and he who hates his life in this world "'will keep it for eternal life.'" If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him him my father will honor. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great and blessed God, we thank you for this beautiful day. The heavens do declare your majesty and your righteousness and your glory. We see the perfections of God revealed in the created order. We look at the creature and it leads us up to consider the God who made all things. As well, we acknowledge your sovereign providence that you are in heaven and that you govern all your creatures and all their actions according to your perfect and holy will. And on these Lord's days, when we come to consider the gospel of our salvation, we reflect upon that grace and that mercy and that wisdom displayed in that gospel. We thank you for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, We thank you for his life of perfect obedience, his death as a sacrifice and substitute on the cross, and his resurrection that third day. As well, we praise you for his current session now at the right hand of the Father, and we look forward to his return again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And may it be the case that all of us would be prepared for that day, that all of us would be cleansed in his precious blood and clothed with his righteousness. We ask that the Holy Spirit would guide us now as we consider this passage of Scripture, that we would see the glory of the Son of Man as it's revealed in the Bible. And we ask that you would forgive us for all sin and everything that darkens our understanding. And we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as we have been considering the public ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, we notice that the book of John is outlined in three sections. First, the prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And then the book of signs, the public ministry of Christ, beginning in chapter uh, 1 at verse 19 and continuing here through chapter 12 to verse 50. And then the book of the passion, beginning in chapter 13, verse 1, and continuing to the end of chapter 20. And then there's an epilogue in chapter 21. So that's the sort of overarching outline of the gospel of John. Chapters 11 and 12 are transit are, are a transition. And we see the emphasis upon the cross already in this particular section. So the title of this morning's message is The Arrival of the Hour in verses 20 to 26. And there's two things that I want to observe here in this small section. First, the desire of the Greeks in verses 20 to 22, and then secondly, the glorification of the Son of Man in verses 23 to 26. Let's look first at the desire of the Greeks in verses 20 to 22 and look at verse 20. uh, 20. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. We know that the setting is Jerusalem. Jesus triumphantly enters the city of Jerusalem, where he'll ultimately be delivered up to these godless men, the Sanhedrin. He will then be turned over to Pontius Pilate, who will then sentence him to death. And so he's in Jerusalem for that particular occasion. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's the particular location, but as well, we know that it's during the Passover. And that's what verse 20 indicates. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. If you look back at chapter 11 and verse 55, it says, and the Passover of the Jews was near. And then again in chapter 12 at verse one, then six days before the Passover. So these Greeks were in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And I think that's significant. It's significant in the immediate context Because this is precisely the grumbling and the whining and the complaining of the Pharisees back in verse 19, but it's also uh, what we find throughout Scripture. So notice in verse 19, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing, or you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And on the heels of that, John tells us that there are Greeks in the city of Jerusalem at the time of the Passover feast and they want to see Jesus. So the very fear that these Pharisees had and the very expression of their grumbling hearts is actually the truth. And that's the blessing of the Christian gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, not simply to save the lost tribes of Jacob, but to be a light Under the Gentiles, this was prophesied in the Old Testament to the patriarchs. We see it throughout the Psalms, and we certainly see it in the prophets. Gentile inclusion in the covenant promises of God Most High. In other words, Israel's Messiah will mediate the blessing of God to the entire earth. He's not just coming to one small people group, but he is coming so that men from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation can come to salvation. In other words, he's not simply a savior for the Israelites. He is a savior for Gentiles. He is not simply a savior for white people. He's a savior for black people. He's not simply a savior for one particular niche group, but he is the one in whom the blessings of God reside. And so when we consider the Psalms, when we consider the prophets, when we consider the testimony of the Old Testament, it is perfectly appropriate and fitting that these Greeks would be in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost or at the Feast of Pentecost and that the desire of their hearts would be to see Jesus, to see the Messiah. And I think Solomon sort of captures this, this mindset and the dedication of the temple. 1 Kings chapter 6, Solomon starts out to build the temple. We see by the time of the uh, uh, end of chapter uh, 7, we see it completed. And then in chapter 8, Solomon dedicates that temple. He prays to God Most High. He acknowledges the transcendence of God. He acknowledges the limitations of this earthly temple. He knows that God can't be contained in the temple. The pagans thought that Dagon actually lived in Dagon's temple. The God of heaven and earth is transcendent. He's above us. He is, he's enthroned on high. Heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. So the temple is the visible representation of God's presence with his people, but it does not confine him or constrain him. But in that dedication of the temple, listen to Solomon in terms of the nations around Israel. He says in chapter 8 at verses 41 to 43, he says, moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, For they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this temple, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. That all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. It was always God's plan and purpose. It was always God's intention. It was always God's means to save His people from their sins. Wherever they might find themselves, whether they're in Canada, whether they're in America, whether they're in Africa, whether they're in Asia, the nations of the earth are blessed in and through our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when God tells Abraham in Genesis 13 to look north, to look south, to look east, and look west. And he says, You're going to inherit all this. It's not predicated on the faithfulness and the glory and the righteousness of Abraham, but it's the seed of Abraham. In him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And even preceding Abraham, the oracle to Noah, it spoke concerning Japheth, Gentiles finding refuge in the tents of Shem. So God's purpose in Christ Jesus, our Lord, is to save his people from their sins, no matter where they find themselves. And so this is the comprehensive nature of God's glorious gospel of salvation in terms of the historical precedent. It's not just here that we see Greeks at the time of the feast coming to Jerusalem. The book of Acts is scattered with that. All throughout the book of Acts, Acts chapter two, all the nations of the earth are gathered together in the day, uh, on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Why do you think that is? So that the gospel of Jesus Christ can go to all those nations. Gentiles brought nigh through the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, Acts chapter 10, the household of Cornelius, How about the the Ethiopian eunuch that Philip comes to in Acts chapter 8? What is the Bible telling us? The Bible is telling us that the promises of God are mediated to the entirety of the world through Christ the Lord. He's not only the Savior for the lost tribes of Jacob, but he is the light of the Gentiles. And that is what we find in this particular passage. It is consistent with John's emphasis throughout his gospel. John 3, 16, God so loved the world. Remember last week, Chris Santiago preached from John 4. What do the Samaritans learn when they come into saving contact with our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John 4, 42? They learn that Jesus is, in fact, the Savior of the world. And we see that same emphasis replicated here in chapter 12. In fact, in chapter 11, Caiaphas prophesies the death of Jesus for the benefit not just of that nation, but for other nations as well. Jesus in John 10 says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold that I must go call and collect. Well, how does he do that? Through the proclamation of the gospel through the apostles. And then since then and subsequent to them through the church proclaiming the glories of Jesus Christ as the one in whom alone there is salvation. One man wrote the fact that these Gentiles came to the temple out of devotion prefigured the conversion of the Gentiles to the faith. Now notice their desire, according to verses 21 and 22. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. John's already told us that in John 1.44. We also know that Andrew came from Bethsaida in Galilee as well. Andrew, of course, was the brother of Simon Peter, one of the sort of chief apostles amongst them. But notice here in verse 21, then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. That's significant. What's with Bethsaida of Galilee? Well, Bethsaida of Galilee is pretty much Gentile country. Again, Chris did some of my work last week. He explained how in 2 Kings chapter 17, we see the fall of the northern kingdom. And that was as a result of Assyria. And Assyria had an interesting method of conquest. They would take other peoples and put them in other places. And they would do that to destabilize populations. They would put sea peoples in the mountains. They would put mountain people near the sea. Why? Because they didn't have the wherewithal to survive well in an environment like that. So when they are planted in Assyria, according to 2 Kings chapter 17, God sends lions upon them to kill them. Why? Because they were wretched, filthy idolaters. I've always thought that if you ever answer your door and there's a lion standing there, God's got an ax to grind with you. And that is precisely what you see there in 2 Kings 17. So what do the people do? The people say, we need help. We need help not to learn how to glorify and honor God, but how to do enough to keep the lions at bay. So they find a priest, an old school priest, but he's in Bethel which is an indicator for anybody who's read up to that point that Bethel's not the best place to hail from in terms of being a priest. So that priest gives them some counsel and what they do is they marry their gods to Yahweh of Israel. That's not the way you're supposed to operate. Anyways, that region, Samaria, is Gentileville. And so that they contact Philip and then Andrew makes sense. They probably had some sort of familiarity with these particular men. And then notice the particular action that they pursue. Verse 21, they come to Philip, who is from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I've shared with you before, many a Puritan pulpit had this placard on their pulpit. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Sir, we want to see Jesus. That's what preachers should always be mindful of. You're not here to see me. You're not here to see whatever's going on in the world. You're here to see Jesus by faith. And that's the desire of these Gentile hearts. And intriguingly, look at the contrast. Notice that the Pharisees are upset about this. The Pharisees want to destroy him. The Pharisees want to murder him. The Pharisees are counting the days until they can put him on the cross and and cry out away with him, away with him, crucify him. Look at the contrast. The Sanhedrin, the religious leadership in Israel is wanting to murder Jesus. And yet the Greeks are here wanting to see him, wanting to learn about him. And see, I think connotes that. It has the idea of interview. They want to understand something about him. Why is that? Because the knowledge of his works was spreading vis-a-vis the resurrection of Lazarus in chapter 11. Wouldn't you want to see the man who was able to say to a dead body, come forth? I would. I'd be intrigued. I would be curious about that. But it wasn't just the knowledge of his works that was spreading around. It was the knowledge of his word, his teaching, his doctrine. What do they say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus is not like the scribes, but rather he teaches with authority. And I think it's the authority invested in him by virtue of the fact that the very word that he's teaching is his word. When Jesus teaches, it's not according to this rabbi. It's not according to that rabbi. When Jesus makes that statement that our brother read, you've heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you, he's not saying Moses bad, me good. He's saying that the rabbinic tradition, the Pharisees and the scribes that botched up interpreting Moses, he's he's contrasting him with them. Moses was right on and Jesus is his true expounder. So Christ spoke as one with authority. So of course, these Greeks desired to see him. But it wasn't just his works. It wasn't just his word. But it was also his identity. See, at this point, people are asking, is this the Messiah? People are curious. Is this the one promised in the Old Testament? Is this the one that Moses wrote of? Is this the one that Isaiah prophesied? Is this the one that David sung of in the Psalter? Is this the Christ? So, of course, the Greeks are desirous. Of course, course the Greeks want to learn. Of course, the Greeks want this interview with our blessed Savior. Now, notice, secondly, then, the glorification of the Son of Man. So, verse 22, Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. That brings us to the glorification of the Son of Man in verses 23 to 26. Two things I want to do here. First, the declaration of the hour verse 23 and then the implications of that hour in verses 24 to 26. I'm going to explain what the hour is so if you missed that anywhere along the past uh, exposition I'll define that for you. But the declaration concerning the hour in verse 23 and then the implications concerning the hour in verses 24 to 26. As I've said this uh, uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem is with a specified purpose. He is going to carry out all that the Father had given him to do. His life of active obedience is coming to an end, and now he comes to the passive obedience. When I say passive, that does not mean he was wholly uninvolved in his death. He lays down his life for the sheep. But in theology, we make a distinction between what Christ did in terms of his positive obedience, his active obedience to every law that God had specified. In other words, you're you're not supposed to commit adultery, as we just heard in the reading. You're not supposed to commit murder, as we heard in the reading. You're not supposed to engage in blasphemy or idolatry. You're not supposed to be a Sabbath breaker. You're not supposed to be a lying thief. You're not supposed to be a covetous wretch. Jesus obeyed all that. And Jesus obeyed all that by virtue of his uniqueness, but he obeyed all that by virtue of the fact that he is a public person. He's our representative. We oftentimes focus on the cross, and well, we should, and the benefits that accrue. We need his death as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But we need his life to provide us with a righteousness by which we'll be accepted by God. That's what the gospel brings. If you're not a saved person here this morning, listen to what Jesus says. With Jesus, you get not only forgiveness, which if that's all it was, praise God Almighty, but you get his righteousness imputed to you and received by faith alone. So of course we focus on the cross. Of course we celebrate the cross. Of course we concentrate on that fountain that is open for sin and uncleanness. But by that, we don't neglect or negate the fact that Jesus obeyed perfectly. Why? Because we don't. Because we can't. As our brother pointed out, in Adam all die. When Paul comes to deal with the Ephesians to celebrate the riches of God's grace in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, he rehearses what we were. He says, you being dead in your trespasses and sins. How do we get from the state of deadness and trespasses and sins to acceptance with God most high? Well, it's by virtue of the work of Jesus Christ in his death, but as well in his life. So when we believe on him, we're not only forgiven of our sins, but we're clothed in a righteousness by which we can enter in to the presence of God most high. So that act of obedience, by and large, is complete. And now he's moving into the passive obedience. Again, passive does not mean he's not involved, but it's probably related to the word passion. It has to do with his penal sufferings on the cross for all those whom the father had given him. And so when we look at this language and the declaration concerning the hour, notice what he says in verse 23. He doesn't answer the question specific or, or directly rather. When Andrew and Philip say, you know, uh, Jesus, the, the, the Greeks want to see you. He doesn't say, well, you know, just send them over here and I'll give them give an interview. Tell them to bring their iPhone and hit the, you know, record dial and I'll, you know, I'll enter into a series of questions. He doesn't answer them that way. So raise his hand and, you know, gesture over to the Greeks and say, you know, here I am. But he answers their question theologically. What do you think the Greeks want to interview him about? You know, what's your view on on Caesar? What's what's your view on Pontius Pilate? What's your view on the the economic crisis that we're facing here in the first century? What's your view of the, the larger sort of macrocosm? They want to know, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the one we're waiting for? Are you the one that Moses and and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah spoke of? Are are you the one that, that is going to come and save us from our sins? So he doesn't answer them directly, here am I. But he answers them theologically by pointing forward to the hour. And he says that that hour has arrived. Notice in verse 23. But Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Turn back to John 2. John chapter 2, just a bit of this emphasis on the hour. John chapter 2, Jesus has referred to the hour, but up until this point in John 12, it's always been future. It's always something coming. It's always something on the horizon. It's an eventuality, it's a certainty, but it hasn't yet come. The scene shifts here in John 12. The hour has come. But notice in John 2, specifically at verse 4, this is when Mary asks him to deal with the wine problem. Verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My my hour has not yet come. John John 7, similar emphasis, John 7, specifically at verse 30. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8, specifically in verse 20, similar emphasis. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. So in light of these two passages, what ought we to conclude? The hour had come, they're gonna lay hands on him. The hour had come and they're gonna take him. The hour had come and they're gonna deliver him up. The hour had come and they're going to crucify him because they're godless, vile, bloodthirsty wretches! This is what John is preparing us for in these previous chapters. We get to John 12, 23, makes that declaration. Drop down to John 12, 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Notice in 13.1, the upper room discourse. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Notice in John 16, specifically at verse 32, similar emphasis. Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come that you will be scattered, each to his own and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Isn't that exactly what happens at the cross? Is that exactly what happens? The disciples forsake him. They bail. When Jesus is hung upon the cross, they're not there, brethren. It's the faithful women that attend to him at that particular time. And then notice the high priestly prayer in John 17, 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. So back to John 12, it's not an eventuality or a certainty that's in the distant future, but it's come. Passion week has started. First day, Monday, he's triumphantly entered into the city. Several events will occur in that week. It will culminate on the Friday when he is delivered up by these godless men at the behest, or rather at the the, uh, agreement of Pontius Pilate, that wicked coward that that capitulated to an angry mob. But that's what's going to happen. And of course, he dies. He's raised again on the third day. So he speaks of the hour having come. Now, notice the language that he employs here in verse 23. The hours come that the Son of Man should be glorified. It's one of the favorite titles of Jesus for Jesus. Up in our Sunday school room, there's a beautiful banner that Mrs. Don Mars had made uh, when we had Sunday school for the children. By the way, we don't have Sunday school because we hate kids. It's hard to find... Of volunteers that will do that and commit to that. So, if anybody's ever interested in, in, in doing Sunday school, let, let me know. But she made this beautiful banner with all of the titles of God Most High that we find in the scripture. I think we all have sort of our favorite ways that we address God. We, we call him Father, or we call him Holy Father, or we call him God. Or, you know, we, we, we refer to Jesus, you know, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We refer to him as Savior. We refer to him as King and Lord and all those things. Well, Jesus refers to himself as Son of Man. Now, persons say, well, that's to make sure that we understand that he was truly man. Well, he is truly man and we know that john 1 14 the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth i think the lord jesus takes that title son of man with its old testament meaning and its old testament meaning is daniel 7 13 and 14 and it points to his divinity it points to his glory it points to his majesty It points to the fact that he will be exalted at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, and he'll always live to make intercession for his people, and he will come in glory to judge the living and the dead. He uses that title here specifically with reference to the hour. If, on the one hand, you consider the hour as the biggest crime ever perpetrated against an innocent man, you're, you're right. What does Jesus ever do in any of the gospel records that would earn him the death penalty? It was a travesty of justice. You think you've been framed? You think you've been misrepresented? You think you've been judged harshly? Jesus was wholly harmless, and undefiled, and he was crucified on a cross. But at the same time, how do Christians refer to that cross? It's the place of glory. Yes, shame and ignominy and the, the curse of God and the wrath of God and the fury of God. But it's there that he finishes the work of redemption. It's there that he says triumphantly, it is finished. We as Christians look at the cross as an emblem of Christ's glory. And that's what he is doing here. The cross, which was a scandal to the unbelieving Jew, was nevertheless a demonstration, demonstration that Christ is both the wisdom and the power of God. So he says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He associates that with his death but I think Jesus assumes everything else that goes along with his death, his incarnation. That means his life of perfect obedience, his, his, his death on the cross, but then his resurrection and then his exaltation to the right hand of the father. All of that is the glorification of the son of man who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. So that's the declaration concerning the hour. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now let's move on to the implications of that hour in verses 24 to 26. In other words, notice what Jesus doesn't do. I'm going to die. Let's go. What's the significance of this death? What does it mean for us? There's a Latin phrase. I think it's pro nobis, which is God for us. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. And I think Jesus now is going to lead his hearers by the hand to explain to them the significance of his death. In other words, it's not just some abstract concept, but it has concrete application in the lives of real human beings. He didn't just come down to set an example. He didn't just come down to start a new religion. He didn't just come down to to be a revolutionary. He came down for us men and for our salvation. And there's three things he says concerning that hour with reference to us. In the first place, he says the death that he dies is absolutely necessary. Verse 24. Secondly, he underscores the response to his death Verse 25, and then outlines the benefit of his death in verse 26. So he moves from the concept of his dying to the application of that death in the lives of the people. So let's look at the necessity of his death. Notice verse 23, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, as if he's amplifying or explaining or expounding on that, he goes on to give the significance of the hour. So verse 24, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Now, let me just ask you, is Jesus a farmer? Does he have an agricultural lesson? I know that, that, that Home Depot has lessons for kids on how to learn carpentry. What a good thing. Take your kids to that. You know, they should learn how to build stuff. They should learn how to, you know, use hammers and nails and put things together. Is, is Jesus just got an agricultural bent? That's his mindset. You know, I just wanna teach you about how to plant seeds and what happens as a result of that. No, that's not his concern. He's using a real life illustration with spiritual application. Paul does this when he comes to deal with man resurrected from the dead. He says in First Corinthians chapter 15 at verse 36, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. So Christ speaks of the hour, associates that with his glorification and then shifts gears specifically in verse 24 to his death. And notice the emphasis. There has been, in the history of theology, a discussion on the way that God saves sinners. Could God, who is omnipotent, save sinners in a way other than his son coming, taking on our flesh, living, dying, and being raised again? Some have suggested, yeah, he in his power could have formulated another way that would not have entailed the death of his son. That's always seems suspicious to me because it's always sort of suggested that the infinitely wise God didn't choose the infinitely wise path to save his people from their sins, to uphold both his justice and righteousness and to manifest his grace and mercy and love. Notice that Jesus says, "Unless, unless this series of events transpires, you will die in your sins. Unless a seed is planted and it dies, or unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. So notice the necessity of his death. In other words, there's no stopping this. There's no sort of staying the hand of Jesus. This is why, say, for instance, in Matthew chapter 16, Just after saying to to Peter, Peter confesses, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my my father who's in heaven revealed this. Just a few verses later, in my Bible, it's a few, you know, two inches down. uh, Jesus announces that he must go to Jerusalem. He must be tried. He must be delivered up and he must die. What does Peter do? The man who was just pronounced blessed, Simon Bar-Jonah. He says, forbid it, Lord. That's not going to happen. And what does Jesus then do? Well, you know, Peter, that's just the way it's got to be. He says, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking God's thoughts after him. You're not thinking in terms of the prophets. You're not thinking in terms of Moses. You're not thinking in terms of blood atonement. You're not thinking about that day of atonement, which necessitated the death of the goat in order for the forgiveness of sins. So the Lord Jesus must die. And when we look at the application that follows here and that we know of elsewhere, we learn a few things. First, the death of Jesus Christ. That must take place. That's what he associates with the hour. But notice as well the death of Jesus Christ for the benefit of others. Don't miss that. The for us nests about the mission of the Savior. So verse 24, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. In other words, there's benefit for others through the death of the Savior. Peter waxes on this when he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So in other words, when you look at the death of Christ, there's an exemplary fact, uh, uh, factor to it. You know, go out and die for Jesus the way Jesus showed how, you know, he died for us. Okay, but that's not the primary emphasis. The primary emphasis is, you know, Hebrews 9. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. It's Ephesians 1, 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So what does the death of Christ entail? It entails benefit for others. But if you're reading verse 24, it's not just a handful of others, is it? Is it just one tree, one sprout, a few? You know, hyper-Calvinists tell us there's only gonna be a handful in heaven. I mean, come on, why would you even preach the gospel? There's, you know, not, not much hope for anybody out there. It's only hope for a handful. Is that what Jesus teaches? Is that what Jesus says is true concerning the death of the, the, the death of Christ? Look at what he says in verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. It's not just grain, but the accent, I think, ought to fall on the muchness of the grain. And lo and behold, when you move through Scripture, going from this point on, you, you get to the book of Revelation. And when you get to the book of Revelation, is it just handful? What about those churches that think they're the only ones that are right? We've been accused of that. Brethren, just because you prefer something or you think something is right doesn't necessarily exclude everybody else. I think Reformed Baptist theology, our confession of faith, represents in summary form what the Bible teaches. But I'm not suggesting that's it. If you don't hold the 1689, you're hell bound. There are churches in history that have interpreted it that way. When you get to the book of Revelation, is it just that church? Is it just that group of mouth breathers and knuckle draggers that are going to sit at the throne of God most high? Then that's not what you get. Listen to John elsewhere. John who wrote the gospel writes in Revelation. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Revelation 7, 9 and 10. After these things I looked and behold... A great multitude which no man can number. What does that suggest in terms of our missionary fervor? It ought to give us that impetus. It ought to make us prayerful. It ought to make us hopeful. It ought to make us confident and expectant. It ought to send us to our knees when we look at Revelation 7 and you see this great multitude assembled before the throne of God. And Jesus says as much here in verse 24. It produces much grain. So John says after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations tribes peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb They're not congratulating themselves. They're not patting themselves on the back. They're not Arminians or Pelagians. They're not celebrating their free will. They're not saying praise God because we were smarter than everybody else. Salvation belongs to our God and to the lamb who sits on the throne. The one who died produces much grain. Now going back to John chapter 12, notice secondly, that specific response to his death. In other words, What is the much grain going to look like? He says he's going to die. He says that his death is necessary. He says that his death will indeed produce much grain. Well, how do we know what that much grain looks like? Do they have G's on their back? Grain? Do they have E's on their forehead? Elect? Do they wear special clothing? Do they have special insignia? Are they identifiable in a group of people just by our, the way we look at them? Well, notice what Jesus says in verse 25, the response to his death. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In other words, the much grain are going to be those who, by God's grace, believe on Jesus. You see that emphasis all throughout John's gospel. You see it in John chapter one. You see it in John chapter six. You see it in John's purpose statement for the very writing of the book, John 20, 30, and 31. These things are written so that what? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have everlasting life. So those by grace who believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ are described here in verse 25 as not being tied to this world as not being lovers of this world, as not being the sorts of people that value the temporal, that value the physical, and that value what they can touch, taste, feel, and see right here and right now. He's not calling us to asceticism. He's not saying, you to go live out in the desert and don't eat and die. He's not saying that, but he is telling us that those who are tied to this present evil age, those who find truck with the godless in our day, Those who do not value and and prize Jesus Christ, those who do not have a saving interest in him are those who love their lives. They're those who don't care about eternity. Have You ever witnessed or testified or tried to share the gospel with somebody and they were so tied and set to this present evil age, they wouldn't even hear it? The thought of another world, the thought of a glorious God, the thought of a coming judgment, the thought that there would be discrimination on the part of the Son of Man between the sheep and the goats. People don't care. In a materialistic age, all they want is Netflix and chill. All they want is some, you know, beer in their fridge and some hockey on their television. All they want is the here and now. But for the people of God, we may struggle with some of that to be sure. We've got remaining laziness and apathy and lethargy and all that sort of thing. But definitionally, we are concerned about the age to come. Descriptively, we are a people that are they're fixated with the blessed Savior. Notice what he says here in verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In a parallel in Matthew 16, verses 24 to 26, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That's obviously what he's talking about in this passage. So verse 25, he who loves his life will lose it. If you are attached to you, yourself and you, if your orientation is the unholy trinity, me, myself and I, you're going to lose your life. You're going to go to hell. Notice that Jesus doesn't ever shy away from telling that. Oh, we can't tell sinners that they're going to go to hell because they won't like that. Oh, well, then therefore, let's just throw out, you know, large swaths of our Bible. Just do the hospital ministry in pre-COVID times, and we'd always get the guidelines. You know, don't talk about judgment. Don't talk about hell. Well, you know, I've never been constrained to walk past my neighbor's house and it's on fire and say, well, you know, I'm just not going to let him know that his his house is on fire. That would be ghoulish and and insensitive. See, others might interpret that as loving to say, you know what? Your house is on fire. You probably should vacate it. Grab the wife, grab the kids, grab the dog, get out. Just just go because your house is on fire. How is it unloving to tell people the truth? Why has the church bought that lie? Why has the church been so conditioned to think that we can't ever say anything that might make people feel bad? You know what, brethren? Feeling bad occasionally is a good thing. Feeling your guilt and your sin and your shame can be a blessed thing when it brings you to the foot of the cross, when it Causes you to say with the hymn writer, Foul I to the fountain fly, Wash me, Savior, or I die. When it evokes from that same hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring, Simply to thy cross I cling. See, brethren, Jesus doesn't shy away from telling people that if you resist him and you reject him, you will lose your life. You will perish in hell. You will go to that place of torment and damnation and curse. And notice when he goes on in verse 25, he says, he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Again, that doesn't mean you wake up and you punch yourself. Doesn't mean you go to the cupboard and get arsenic and ingest it. It doesn't mean you stand out on train tracks. That's not what it means. Hating your life in this world means the opposite to what those lovers of their life in this world look like. They don't care about the age to come. They don't think about the judgment to come. They don't think about the reality of a gracious God who sent his Son into this world, sinners to save. So, when by grace we believe the gospel, what else do we learn? We learn to hate the world in the righteous sense. Paul speaks this language in in, in Romans 12 do not be conformed to the world. What does he mean? Stop eating? Stop wearing clothes? Stop having a how? No, it means don't be a wretch like everybody who populates the world. Don't be wicked. Don't be vile. Don't be wretched. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body and soul. And then notice thirdly and finally, with reference to the implications, he speaks concerning the benefit of his death. The benefit of his death. I mean, he does this a lot elsewhere, and so, do the, so does the entirety of the New Testament. But in this particular instance, he gives the declaration, verse 24, uh, 3, and then he brings out these implications. The necessity of his death, the, 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 the purpose, or rather the, uh, the, uh, 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 the response to his death on the part of the verse 25 people. And then notice in verse 26, and I think the connection is simple. The death of Christ produces much grain. The much grain is obviously not, you know, fruit trees and bushes and shrubs and all that. The the much grain is saved sinners. Those sinners believe in him by the grace of God and they are the ones who hate their life in this world and they keep it for eternal life. Now notice the benefit. The benefit you'll probably zip through 26 and say, oh yeah, there it is. My, My father will honor. But I suggest the preceding clauses are benefit too. Look at what he says in verse 26, if anyone serves me. When you hear that language, do you go, I don't want to serve any man. You're not the boss of me. Who says that? The nation's in rebellion against Yahweh and his Christ. You're not the boss of me. For the blood-bought child of God, who by God's grace is believing in Jesus, the service of Christ isn't the chore the service of Christ is the blessing. It's a benefit. It's the goodness. It's the joyfulness. Remember years ago, I preached from Acts chapter 2, the response of the church to the preaching of Peter. And somebody took me aside that somebody's no longer here. And he said, well, that was law. That was, that was not good. Well, I was preaching the bit. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, I guess in one category, you could see that as law, but I was preaching it as the glorious blessing of the blood-bought children of God who get to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. If there's a oughtness or mustness to this and it causes you to recoil in horror, You've not embraced the the blessedness of it. And so when Jesus says, in the connection here, he produces much grain, saves sinners, they believe by God's grace, they hate their lives and they keep keep it for eternal life. And then he says, if anyone serves me, beautiful. We get to serve our Jesus. What could be better? This is what Adam and Eve were purposed to do with God, isn't it? They didn't come from the hand of God as vile, cantankerous sinners rebelling against him. When, When God comes to deal with them in their sin, when does he come? He comes in the coolest of the day. I don't know all the ins and outs of that, but I surmise it was after Adam's work day. After Adam went out and did what he was supposed to do in terms of his vocation under God, God would come and bless them with his presence. I don't know anybody would say, oh, that's terrible. I wouldn't want to commune with God. I don't want to have any truck with God. I don't want to serve Jesus. Well, if that's the case, may I exhort you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Because his servants want to serve. They only are upset that they don't serve him as they ought. Isn't that our usual complaint? I'd like to serve him a whole lot better. Sorry, Lord, I don't serve you as I, as I, as I should. So I am not as good of as a, 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 a servant. Praise God, we're not going to heaven because of our servanthood to our Lord Jesus, but rather his servanthood for us in terms of his life, death, and resurrection. Notice the, 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 the trajectory here. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. John 8, he talks about being a slave of sin. What does a slave of sin do? He follows the devil. He follows his lusts. He's governed by his passions. He's governed by you know, the things that the Baal worshippers were governed. When you look at the Old Testament, there's a contrast between the worship of the living and true God and Baal. What was Baal about? Baal was about sexual promiscuity. Baal was about indulging yourself. Baal was about trying to get, uh, Baal worship was trying to get Baal to return in kind fertilization for crops. That's not how Yahweh was worshiped. What about Moloch? If you wonder how Moloch was worshiped, think Planned Parenthood because it's pretty much the same. Moloch was a big statue with outstretched arms, and they had a fire at his base. How'd they worship? They'd bring their little ones and throw them into the arms of Moloch. The psalmist says that the idol has eyes and cannot see. He has ears, but he can't hear. He's got a nose, but he can't smell. He's got a mouth, but he can't speak. He'd also say they have arms and they can't catch. So when they threw these little ones into the arms of Moloch, what do you think happened? He didn't have opposable thumbs. He didn't have the ability to do what you and I do if a baby's falling. So that baby would bounce off the arms right into the fire and that's the way Moloch was praised. It's about passion. It's about lust. It's about carnality. It's about sin. What does Jesus say? The one who serves me will follow me. And when we follow him, we don't go, oh man, I gotta follow Jesus. How terrible is that? In the parallel in Matthew 16, pick up your cross daily and follow me. That means be ready to die. We, we've reinterpreted that too. You know, the cross today in the Christian life is, you know, my wife doesn't have dinner ready at 5.30. What a cross to bear. I've got a son who leaves his, you know, his hockey stuff in my garage and it smells. What, what a cross to bear. I've got this person at work that's a real pain. And what a cross to bear. The cross in Matthew 16 was the willingness to die for Jesus. It was the willingness to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. In Matthew, Revelation chapter 14, you see that. Who are these that are washed? Who are these that are spotless? Who are these that are purified? They're the ones who follow the Lamb, wherever he goes. Revelation 14, 4. So Jesus says, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, I love the language. Notice the contrast in tenses. Jesus is there. Huh? Remember, he's not just... True humanity he 's true divinity; he never ceases being true divinity, and we saw the same sort of thing in John three at verse thirteen, same sort of curious language concerning the person of our lord Jesus john three thirteen no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of man who is in heaven. Well, he does the same thing here in John chapter twelve at verse twenty six If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am there my servant will be also. So there's a presentness in terms of Jesus according to his divinity divinity, where I am and there's a futureness in terms of us. Let him follow me and where I am, there my servant will be also. The ones for whom Jesus dies, the one for whom Jesus lives, the one for whom Jesus saves, Those ones have a secure future based on what he's accomplished on their behalf. We will be with him. That's what I want you to get from this passage. We will be with him. Don't we enjoy him now in public worship? I hope you do. I hope you say with David in Psalm 122, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Even if when you first pop out of bed, that's not true. By the time you get to the parking lot, it may still not be true. When you walk through those doors, it still may not be true. Once you start seeing the brethren, once you start singing praises to God, once you start hearing the word read, once you start hearing the word preached, once you start engaging in the worship of the triune God, hasn't it caught up with you? Yes, I am glad to be in the house of the Lord. We're going to dwell with him forever. And that's the promise connected to the hour of The glorification of the Son means the glorification of the sons of men. The glorification of Christ means the glorification for all those whom the Father had given him. And that's the sure promise of our blessed Savior in verse 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Now this idea of the Father honoring us, we're going to see glimpses of that in the upper room discourse as well. It's inconceivable. God honoring me? Really? I mean, come on. That, that is, you know, you, you talk about stuff that's hard to believe, but brethren, we walk by faith in what the scripture says. Now, the honoring here doesn't mean that God bows down to us. Oh, beautiful, wonderful human. I think John Gill gets it right. Gill says by accepting his service, this is what it means to honor us. So what it means by the father honoring us. It means to accept our service because it comes cleansed in the precious blood of Jesus, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. So therefore this can in fact be a sweet smelling aroma to our God. So by accepting his service, affording him his gracious presence here and by giving him eternal glory hereafter to which he has called him. And as well, we know that the father honors the son so what Jesus is saying that that beautiful relationship that obtains between the Father and the Son is ex- extended to include all those whom the Father has given to the Son. Another man says, Jesus said this to show how intimately his servants are related to him, inasmuch as they will be honored by the same one who honors the Son. For the honor the Son has by his nature, they will have by grace beautiful. This is what Jesus is talking about. He announces the arrival of the hour, verse 23. He draws out the implications of that hour in verses 24 to 26. The next time we come to John's gospel, we will see further amplification and explanation of what the hour entails in the following verses. But in conclusion, we ought to appreciate in the first place the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He comes to save his people from their sins. And vital to that is this hour. Vital to that is his death. Vital to that is his suffering. In our stead, the wrath and fury and curse of God most high. See, gospel readers can fall into that. We read it and we see what horrible people people are. And brethren, we should see that. We should see that when we move into the passion narrative. There's something more going on than the wretches saying, away with him, away with him, crucify him. There's something more going on than the Roman soldiers, you know, banging nails through his wrists to to hang him on that tree. There's something more going on than the the, the rabble at the base of the cross mocking himself. He he saved others. Let's see if he can save himself. What's going on beyond that is the wrath and fury of God Most High. When Christ goes into Gethsemane, It's not what man is going to do to him. It's what God's going to do to him. It's the cup of wrath that he must drink. His soul was exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death, according to Matthew 26. What does he pray to the Father, if it is possible? Let this cup pass from me. But the resolution is very clear. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. In other words, he must go to the cross. Please see his glory in that. And then secondly, the nature of discipleship. See, Jesus, again, doesn't throw his his death out there, the allusion to his death in sort of an abstract way. He defines for us and describes for us what it looked like for the benefactors. You're not gonna be the kind of person that is so tied to this earth, you have no concern whatsoever for the age to come. If by grace you believe the gospel, you're gonna be fixated on another world. And again, fixated ebbs and flows. I wish I was more fixated on that, that world of love than I am. But at the same time, there is a radical orientational change in the lives of believers. What we once valued, once we once esteemed, once we once prized. We say with the Apostle Paul that, that, that this is dead to me now. Everything that was profit, I, I count but loss. Why? for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's the change. That's of God. That's regeneration. That's saving faith. That's that breach in terms of the old man. That is living now for our Lord Jesus Christ, serving him, following him, not whining when you hear a sermon on the law, because... The commandments of God are not burdensome to those who have the spirit of God. They love the law. They're like David, that man in the old covenant who says, I love the law of the Lord. It is my delight all day and night. And then finally, for anybody here that's not a believer, I want to stick to the script here because I want to make sure that I get this across. First, consider the wisdom of these Greeks. Consider the wisdom of these Greeks. There is no more important question on the face of the earth than, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Not your portfolio, not your college plans, not the little filly you're gonna marry, but sir, we wish to see Jesus. Consider the wisdom of these Greeks. As well, recognize the way of approach to God. It's not by your works because they're terrible. It's not by your performance because it's wretched, but it's by God's grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear. We're justified freely by his grace. And the way that we appropriate it, the instrument rather by which we come into saving contact with God is faith in Jesus. But as well, understand that faith in Christ is the alone instrument of justification, yet it's not alone in the person justified. In other words, once we're justified, then what? I think verses 25 and 26 illustrate that for us. We come to Jesus, we're justified freely by his grace, we're forgiven of our sins, we're clothed in his righteousness. Now what? Well, now we repent of self-love and a love for this present evil age. Now we serve the blessed savior who is altogether lovely and chief among 10,000. Now we follow him wherever he goes. And just realize this. He's never going to lead us into debauchery. If you find yourself committing adultery or committing theft or you're a robber, Jesus didn't lead you there, brethren. That's off the devil. That's off this present evil age. Jesus leads you into pastures that are good for your soul. Jesus leads you to those things which are good and pleasing in the sight of a great God. And to follow him means blessing. It means privilege. It ultimately means inclusion in the very heaven of God himself where Jesus Christ is. Anticipate that. Look forward to it. Understand that the momentary light affliction that we go through in this present age is nothing compared to the exceeding weight of glory that is awaiting for all of God's children. Well, let us pray. Our blessed Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ministry of our Lord. We thank you as well for his teaching, the clarity of it, and the emphasis on this hour, this glorification of the Son of Man. I pray that you would all give us that saving interest in him, that we would all be looking to him in faith, that we would know the joy of being found in him, not having our own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is from you and received through faith alone. I pray that you would go with us, that you would bless us, that you would help us to to follow the Lamb and to do so with great joy and with great thanksgiving. And we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, you can turn in your hymn books to 568 and we'll close our service by singing the doxology in praise to our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Go with us now, Most High, and bless us, and strengthen us, and keep us by your sovereign grace. And we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We may be seated for a brief time of meditation.